0: Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. We're going to make a little progress tonight even as we review and place in proper context uh, the portion of Scripture we're studying. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tonight, verses 10 through chapter 2, verse 5. We'll read that in just a moment. I want to remind you that Paul doesn't airbrush away The problems at Corinth. Um, He brings them up. (laughs) So their spiritual diseases can be healed. What disease did the Corinthians have? The same one all Christians are prone to. What's that? A shrunken heart toward other Christians with whom we disagree. Uh, Paul had to tell them, you remember, Stop saying, I follow Paul, and others, I follow Peter, and others, I follow Apollos, uh, thereby raising yourselves up while you look down your nose at other Christians. It's not here an issue of whether one side was a true church and the other was a false church. It was all a true church, but there was a party spirit, a, a partisanship at work, and people were aligning themselves with particular ministers and against, most importantly, against other true gospel ministers and their followers so that the body of Christ was becoming like a a piece of clothing that was being ripped, torn, and shredded. And so here's what he says to them. We haven't looked at the whole of it yet. So let's go back and hear the argument of what Paul says to them about it and how he intends to see them healed of this rift. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 5. This is the word of God. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? a stumbling block to Jews, and falling to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low. And despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, And him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God amen this is god's word let's look to him and pray our father in heaven we pray that we would um, we would taste and see that the lord jesus is good show us him what he's done for us and by this word shape us in the ways you desire For your glory and for our good and for the well-being of your whole church, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, that's our second time through, chapter 1, verse 10 through the end. First time to pick up chapter 2, 1 to 5, but I wanted you to see that it's all part of a whole, and we'll see that more and more as we go along. Paul speaks of his preaching at great length and in any number of places along the way in this passage. He talks about preaching Christ. One of the biggest fears that people regularly say that they have, top of the charts, is the fear of public speaking. The desire to be listened to with respect is strong. It makes us anxious how it'll go. Uh, uh, former professor at Bethel Theological Seminary, Dr. Clarence Bass, early in his ministry in a church in Los Angeles, uh, thought he had done quite well after a sermon. And so he stood near the door greeting people on their way out as they left the sanctuary, and uh, the remarks about his preaching were complimentary. That is, until a little old man came up and said, you preach too long. (laughs) Dr. Bass. He wasn't fazed by the remark, especially in all the positive comments. You didn't preach loud enough, came another negative comment. It was from the same little old man. He thought that was kind of strange that the man had come through the line twice, but when the same man came through a third time and exclaimed, you use too many big words, <laughs> that called for some explanation. So he asked a deacon, you know, what, what is it about this guy? Do you see him? and and the deacon said to him oh oh him don't pay any attention to him all he does is go around and repeat everything he hears (laughs) ouch right and let me say this since my calling is to preach perhaps you'll not be surprised i have often longed for the kind of voice you only hear on the radio And the ability to speak such that I would gain a hearing for the gospel. But how easy that is to really wish that I spoke so well that you loved hearing me and not the message. Some of my favorite preachers alive today are men like Sinclair Ferguson and Alistair Begg. You may know him from, I think it's Truth For Life on the radio. Part of the appeal, I'll admit, is the deep. Scottish brogue they have. It's absolutely delicious. I think I could sit and listen to them simply read the phone book. In my early days of preaching, I once practiced an entire sermon. Yes, preachers practice their sermons. I preached the whole thing to myself with my best Scottish Brogue, you know, in the, in the Star Trek beam me up Scotty engineer, you know, as only he could respond to Captain Kirk, kind of a way. And then I tried to revert back to English in my practicing, and I kept slipping into Scottish Brogue, and literally we prayed that I wouldn't go into the pulpit and bring that fake accent into it. And I often pray things like, Lord, keep me from saying something stupid and making a fool of myself. That's a very self-centered prayer, but I've prayed it a lot. I've also prayed more noble prayers at times. Lord, keep me from saying something untrue and so dishonoring you and your word. It's a humbling thing to preach the gospel. And in our text, Paul says a lot about preaching the gospel about what he preaches and how he preaches. But his aim, I want you to see this, is so that, at least in his writing here, is, is so that they will actually be, be knit together, that that cloth won't be torn apart, but well, will be mended and repaired. That was his word back in verse 10, when he said, I want, I want you all to agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind. That word divisions, he, he doesn't... He doesn't want them torn apart, but he wants them to be united, to be mended, to be knit together. It's the word used of a fisherman who repairs his nets so the fish don't get through every time he goes out. And we need to do that, he says, in our relationships. But how do we do that, and why do we do that? And like a good pastor, for their healing, he points them to three major things. I want you to see the forest here, not the trees. He points them to Christ Verses 10 through 29. And what they have in Christ. Verse 30. And then he points them to his own preaching of the cross. Chapter 2, 1 to 5. All designed to bring them together. And I want you to see how he does that. So in the first place, I want you to think, by way of review, we're going we're to flash through it. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 29. Consider, Paul says, Christ on a cross... And then live in light of that. So so he says, here's how you aim at um, harmony in the body of Christ. You ask yourself this question, verse 13. Is Christ divided? Is he split? Is he chopped up and parceled out? Uh, No, that's absurd. There is only one head. And so therefore, there is only one body is his point. The emphasis here is our spiritual unity in Jesus to see that God has already aligned us all under Jesus who is one head of one body, one king and one head of his church in whom alone we already have unity. So quit acting like there that Christ has many churches, but sadly, of course, And often we do act as if the one church is divided. We live as if we're two families or ten families or a thousand families instead of one family. And when we do, that's foolish, it's silly, it's ugly, and it's dishonoring to Jesus. Living that way, friends, doesn't make us more than one family. It means we're a dysfunctional family. But we remain family. There's only one Christ. Contemplate that, friends. Then he asked the question, was Paul crucified for you? Again at verse 13. I mean, did somebody other than Jesus die for your sins? I didn't, said Paul. Quit saying you follow me. And so we saw that partisanship is dishonoring to Christ who died for us. He's the only one who did. Therefore, we're on the same team. We have one Christ One cross and we've all been baptized, he goes on to say, into one church, into one name, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I want to say this, we need to be, Paul is saying, large hearted like Jesus with our arms open wide to the whole body of Christ. There needs to be room in our hearts for every last believer, those whose doctrines we can't stomach, whose personalities we can't stand, whose worship preferences we find shallow or wacky. Are we large-hearted? And then Paul reminds us of more things, of the cross of Christ, which is the wisdom and the power of God for salvation, verses 18 and following. And he says, it was by the power of the cross, not the wisdom of man, that you are being saved. In other words, Paul is... Because the Corinthians, boy, they loved a good speaker who seemed really knowledgeable and said it well. And Paul is just cutting them off at the knees. Wis- the wisdom of man will never, ever, ever lead you to God. And God has designed it in such a way that it cannot. But God's wisdom, which is Christ on a cross, can lead you to God and does lead you to God. So Paul says, I don't want you thinking the way of salvation is human knowledge and human wisdom. It's not and it never has been, but if you think that, is Paul's words, the way he's saying it, if you think that, then you'll be drawn, of course, to the brightest teachers, but all for the wrong reasons. And if the way to God is through human wisdom, we said last time, you know, then only the intellectually superior among us truly could be saved. I mean, is that 10% of us? Is it 50%? But this could exclude a good portion of this room, including the guy up here. But God's way of salvation is not through human wisdom, but through the cross. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We can't climb our way into heaven by our wisdom, but he descends out of heaven onto a cross. And it is power to save so that even stupid people can be saved. And then Paul highlighted the weakness of Christians, verse 25 and following. We looked at this Last time, God didn't pick an all-star team. He looked down at the end of the bench and he found not the very wise and powerful and noble, well, some of them, but most weren't. They were considered the nobodies of the rest of the culture. And, 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 and Paul invites us to glory in that and reflect on it. In a, in a Roman empire, we said, with 60 million slaves without power and influence personally and, and no nobility to be found among them, God said to them, you are important to me. You may be a nobody in this world, but you have a name known to Jesus. You may be unwanted by this world, but I want you, says Jesus. So we saw the weakness of Christians and the grace of God in Christ. How then, does he, how then he concludes, how can we boast in man? But let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And all of that, I I, I go through all of that material again. To highlight this fact, Paul is pointing you to Christ in the cross and and therefore calling you to live in light of that as one people. But that is not the common approach when people have problems. Some will say, well, this problem of partisanship is so knotted up, it's going to take some special... Christians to figure it out some PhDs in the Bible perhaps or the problems are so entrenched that it will take the iron fist of some towering church leader with ecclesiastical authority to whip the body of Christ into uniformity but the answer isn't man or manly leaders it's Christ says Paul others would say guys We just all need to get along. I mean, stop thinking so much about theology. God doesn't care what you believe. Don't worry about studying. We just need to love one another. You guys just need to love people like I do. (laughs) But of course, Paul's answer isn't that either. Does he love? Oh, absolutely but not in contradiction to the truth. He says He says not that we should care less about the truth, but more to ponder the implications of it, of there being only one king, one head, one savior, one Lord, by whose one death we are made one people. Work that out is what Paul is saying. Now, some Christians would say, no, 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 what we need to do is, well, I mean, we hate to do it, but we have to make Christians feel bad. You know, push them out of a sense of guilt and and fear that they'll get with the program. Tell them their salvation is in jeopardy if they don't. Or shame them into embarrassment. But Paul has already told them, chapter 1, 1 to 9, that he loves them. He's for them. He believes in God's work on their behalf. He believes God is faithful to them and will keep them. So he says, look at Jesus and what he has done for you and live in light of that. And I say all that, friends, because it is so tempting to think that what we really need to do as the people of God is to look elsewhere for answers to Christian unity or the answers of our various spiritual diseases anywhere but Christ at the cross. And it's tempting to think that believing in Jesus gets you into the faith, but then what you really need are other things beyond Jesus to continue in the faith. But I wanna say to us, Paul is saying, we never go beyond our need for Jesus. And the cure for our spiritual diseases is actually the great physician and his gospel medicine. And we need it applied again and again and again to our wounds. So that the gospel isn't just for evangelism, it's for discipleship. It's not just for non-Christians out there in the world. It's actually for you, for us, for Christians, for the church. And it's designed to bring us together in a hospital for the sin-weary and the sin-sick. And Jesus is our resident physician. And we're all his patients. And so he says, look, for this problem, look at Jesus, hung on a cross, the power of God to save the helpless. And so stop playing favorites and mend your relationships with other helpless Christians whom Jesus has saved. That, I think, is the the broad brush of what he's saying in the first place. But in the second... (laughs) Wanted to dig a little deeper at verse 30 in the benefits we have in Christ and why does he raise them? We barely touched on this last week. He says, also, consider your completeness in Christ and live in light of that. Notice the language of verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. God is the source. Whom God. Speaking of Christ, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Now, look, he's saying all you need, you have in Jesus. And why is he saying that? Well, it gets at some of the motives that are at work in our hearts when we get crosswise with one another or get pulled apart. I mean, think of it this way you know, some of us desire to be smart or to be seen to be smart, to be as thoughtful as possible and thought of as thoughtful to impress. And if that's you, it's easy for you to align yourself with really sharp theologians who get it and against the theologically lazy and disinterested or to align yourself with thinking Christians instead of doing Christians. And Paul cuts you off at the knees. Christ is our wisdom. Christ is to you the wisdom from God. By the wisdom of the world, we do not know God. By Christ who is the wisdom of God, we do know God and he is our wisdom. So don't judge simple Christians, is what Paul was saying, and don't duck, run, hide, and distance from them. They can know God as intimately as you through Jesus. He is the only way to know God. He is the wisdom of God for us. But then there's a different kind of motive at work in some people, right? The desire to be right. The Reformed are really good at this. To be righter than others who are so obviously wrong. It makes us feel good about ourselves to think that way. To feel like if I align with the right person, then I'm mm, personally right with God. And if this is you, if being right drives everything you do, shapes the way you relate to others, then I want to say a couple of things. On the one hand, Being right is good. It's never good to be wrong. Of course. And believing right things about the gospel is vital to our soul. Absolutely. But hear me. If you think it is the believing of right things that saves you. Then that is a relentless taskmaster. (laughs) There is no end to that. You need to be right about everything. Or the one thing you're not right about could be your undoing, is what your conscience will say. And then you begin to crush others. If you think they're wrong, you can't be patient with them. After all, they're not trying as hard as you are to be right. Why aren't they? And why are they in my way? (laughs) So Paul says there's this group over here squawking at that group over there about how right we are and how wrong they are and not out of love not out of a a dear tender spiritual care for their well-being and soul but frankly out of a burning desire to be proven right to be righteous so that I can feel that way about me and Paul says to us like that you already are righteous and Christ is all your righteousness and that is the cure if that's what divides you from people as isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 puts it i will greatly rejoice in the lord my soul shall exalt in my god for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation he has covered me with the robe of righteousness As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So, you see what God does? He he puts us on a level playing field. We have no right, (laughs) even if they're mistaken about being righteous in Christ or if they're ignorant of it or they're immature or they're confused. We have no right to write them off. (laughs) No, if they believe in Jesus, we identify them as ours because what belongs to them doesn't belong to them because of how well they know it belongs to them, (laughs) but because it belongs to them because it belongs to Jesus and he shares all good things with his people. But there's another motive at work, right? The Apostle Paul says, there's a desire to be set apart going on in the lives of people and that can be divisive if improperly used. You know, some people really like to be different, to be unique, to feel included and to belong, to feel like they're in the inner circle <laughs> if they're aligned with the right leader. But Paul says, Christ is your sanctification. He set you apart. He set you apart for God and to God. You couldn't be any more in with God than you already are in Christ. You belong to God, and human strength didn't get you that. Jesus did. So also for all Christians. We might pause there and reflect that Paul distinguishes the gift of righteousness from the gift of sanctification in this text. Both are to be found in every believer because they're both in Christ. You can't be righteous in Christ without being sanctified in Christ. You can't have a right standing before God without belonging to God and being set apart with him and for him. So he distinguishes two different gifts, but he keeps them together in the one who receives them. You have these things in Jesus. And then he goes on to say you also have redemption. There is a longing in the human heart to be free of the bondage of decay and sin which enslaves in this world. And to be rescued from all evil. And to live in the glory which is to come with a perfect soul in a perfect body in a perfect world before the face of your perfect loving father. And he says, you have that in Jesus. So all I have is from God, Paul says. All I am is what I am in Jesus, and so too for everyone else in Jesus, even if they don't know it yet. And so he tells us, you know, don't boast in man, boast in Jesus, and he will bring us together. Some people think that, however, telling people that they are already complete in Christ is demotivating. It it produces licentiousness. It produces a a willy-nilly Christian life, a lack of love for God, a lack of love for other people, a self-centered and unholy kind of life. But Paul is telling you that actually it's just the opposite. Teaching Christians they are complete in Christ is how you get them to care about righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The driving agenda of this passage is that you have a problem. There's a real sin situation. The sin of pride and disharmony and broken relationships at you, for which you are at fault. And his answer is not shape up or ship out. Get it right or you're gone. But remember what you already have in Jesus. And everybody else in Jesus has that same thing. So when you're righteous in Jesus and you're paying attention to that, beating others up for their unrighteousness loses its appeal. It doesn't build you up. You can't go any higher. It doesn't tear them down. They can't go any lower. Or we might say this, when you co-own a bakery with unlimited supplies of ingredients, giving away bread is no threat to your next meal. Therefore, Paul says, get along. Put, don't put one person above another. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's unifying. And finally, Paul says, as we get to chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he says, well, he'd said, consider your calling, brothers. You guys were nobodies. Then he says, now consider my preaching. <laughs> and how weak it was. But live in light of that. It's actually unifying to know this. When I came to you, brothers, chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. But I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech wasn't with plausible words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit. What is he saying? Paul's admitting, well, I wasn't really super brilliant when I came to you. And my delivery wasn't super convincing. Paul went to Corinth to preach. And not Christ as a teacher, Christ as a philosopher, Christ as a religious leader, Christ as a miracle worker, Christ as a spiritual guru, Christ as a great example. Christ is one we could, we could enjoy having coffee talking about, you know, because it's some super duper philosophy. He came and preached Christ, hung on a cross, dead, <laughs> buried, and then risen. And the Christ is the Messiah, God himself in human flesh. The crucifixion is the heart of the gospel, friends. There are other things to be said, but it is vital and fundamental and basic. That's where Paul says my confidence is. Not in my words, but in that message. And I want to say this, what a rebuke to me. I can't seem to stop trying to perfect the sermon I'm going to preach. Before I preach it, hour after relentless hour, imagining, friends, (laughs) you'll find this hilarious, imagining that if I just get one turn of phrase a little bit better, smoother, in closer parallel, so it rattles off the tongue and clanks into your brain. Oh, I just think that will win your faith in Jesus. And that, Paul says, is absurd. And I didn't come and speak to you. I gave you the truth plain and unvarnished. And I know you're impressed with great speakers. We all kind of like them. But I didn't do any of that with you, Paul says. And I want to say our American Christian culture doesn't think this way either. So we should all beware This is why we have celebrity Christians, right? We think that if we could just get the right speaker, then those who listen will really hear the gospel and really grow spiritually. So let's either get some famous preacher or let's get a famous celebrity or sports star, somebody who got converted and get them up front. Or let's get somebody who's really funny and witty that everybody just loves to laugh with and the effect will be what we're hoping for conversion and faith in jesus and paul says then you're trusting in man's work and words and not in god to do what only god can do by god's spirit but paul says god will get his work done in his way and our aim should be to do so likewise now what is that by being intentionally boring no I don't think that Paul means that. Or by being intentionally obscure? Well, I would hope not. But by being intentionally eloquent? No. But speaking plainly and clearly in dependence upon the Spirit of God to do what only the Spirit can do. And in an attitude, Paul says, of weakness. Now, he'd actually been beaten and thrown out of a whole host of cities and I mean, he was a pretty worn out guy when he got there. They didn't find him to be, much of, uh, to be an impressive preacher at all. But he also came with an attitude of, of trembling. He knew the great cause that he had come for and the heights of the message he had that no man could have thought of and the sheer responsibility of saying it right. That God saves sinners by Christ on a cross to those who believe. And so Paul says, you know, if it was human wisdom that won your faith, well, then you're in a precarious position because there's always somebody smarter who can come along and undo your faith. But Paul says, your faith isn't in that at all, dear Christian, but in the power of God who brought you life. And Paul says, I had to do God's work, and it was entirely above my ability to get it done. I aimed for that which I could not produce in you. Faith. And and for any aspiring teacher and preacher out there, that is a burden off your shoulders. What a relief, Paul is saying to us. The relief from the feeling I've got to twist and manipulate conversations to, to, to say it just right to win or grow faith in people. The relief from having to manipulate other people's feelings or the relief from having to bear the weight of another person's response or failure to respond to the gospel. What a relief, Paul says. Listen, I do want you to believe, Paul says, and so does your pastor, but not chiefly because I do, or because I could persuade you, or because the church bears witness to the truth, or even your parents taught it to you. Those are all great incentives to believe, no doubt. We'd rather have those than nothing. But it is God's spirit that brings it home to your heart and mind that Jesus came and he was crucified to die for your sins. What a relief for a preacher in knowing that God is the power behind that. And if he's the power behind it, why would you glory in man, even a great preacher, whatever that is? Jesus is a great savior. So Martin Luther, the time of the Protestant Reformation. And Luther didn't get everything right. Don't misunderstand. But the Protestant Reformation ran wild over Germany and Europe, and Luther was right in it. In that, he preached a famous sermon in March 10, 1522, and it contains a great, awesome quote, revealing in Luther's perspective, and I think Paul's. Why the Reformation was so successful in bringing people to faith in Jesus. He said, in short, I will preach it, the word, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no man by force. He doesn't want to bring about faith by force. For faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, Preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. (laughs) And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. It is the word of the gospel that saves so let the credit for successful preaching be all the Lord's let him who boasts boast only in the Lord and don't ever use your pastor as an excuse for partisanship let's pray Father we bless you and thank you for Jesus and your good gift that you spared not your own son but gave him up for us all how would we not also have all things in him because he delights to give all his good things to his people. Bless you. Thank you. Save us and ground us on Christ. Root us and grow us in him. In his name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the Lord's praise.